inconceivable. You give you send a horse. I do not think it means what you think it means. Oh, can I? Uh, we're live. You can do whatever you want. But welcome to our <laughs> welcome to our uh, GameStop Part Two live stream. Uh, we're last, uh, you know, we're uh, the uh, Freedom and Friends Fairness Foundation or some such. Matthew and I wrote a book. Uh, I do not think that word means what you think it means. It's available on Amazon. And uh, the purpose of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis or whenever we get together on live stream is to try to facilitate conversation between people who don't always agree um, on things. Uh, Matthew and I certainly disagree on a lot. And today we decided to invite a special guest, Sarah Nadav, um, who is a long friend of mine, but also fairly accomplished uh, social media expert and analyst and uh, wrote a book. Uh, what's the title of your book? I don't remember, Sarah. Something about money. Uh, it's, it's called What the Fuck Should I Do Now? What to do when about your money when money stops making sense. There you go. And so certainly I'm money... Also, I'm just going to add in, I'm also a behavioral economist and a member of the World Economic Forum. So... Yeah. And, I'll add to that. and I'll add to that. I also know, um, Sarah... Um, She's also an entrepreneur, and we've we've uh, exchanged many many uh, conversations yeah. over years about entrepreneurship, and also specifically about like being fans of uh, one of your projects was called uh, I don't know how to pronounce it Bucket, yeah, um, B -U -K -I -T, yeah. about um, sort of in a way undermining the sort of larger structure of debt and who gets to have the power to buy off their own debt and things like that. So yeah. both of us are fans of David Graeber's work and uh, which Shimon is quite a bit more critical of. And uh, so, yeah, so we all have a little bit of a connection here and, and slightly different philosophies about what money and debt markets and trading and all these fun things are that just went to some sort of weird overboil in uh, the stock market with the GameStop crisis. So, so here yes. we are. I'm sure that behavioral economics uh, is going to have a lot to say in the days and weeks and years to come about this GameStop trade because I think it's I think it's fascinating. Um, yeah. So some for those who are, who you know were not in our last live stream, which was about a week ago, right, right in the midst of the craziness, uh, we kind of left off talking about this idea that the stock market effectively is part um, capital allocation machine, part um, casino or gambling operation. And so we figured we'd pick it, pick the conversation back up with there. I think, Matthew, you had something to say to, to start us off on that. Well, yeah, there's a couple, you know, you, you, you're, you're allowed to lend people money or lines of credit um, for what look like official business type things. People are allowed to be, as they call it, leveraged. They can do this in order to borrow that to make these sort of moves in the stock market. Um, and when that's like for a quote, real business purpose and how they make that determination, I'm not really sure, but allegedly that's part of the larger scope of like, as they say, rational allocation of capital, capital, capital for places where it's going to be best used by people to build real goods and services and have access to capital to expand businesses and all these wonderful things that we say is so great about capitalism. But, you know, if someone says, hey, I got a hot tip on a horse, can you give me $100,000 so I can go bet it on this horse? Um, most people would say you'd be completely insane to give someone $100,000, at least not if you expect to get it back. And some, somewhere between here and there, somewhere between 
just lending someone money to just straight up gamble and actually, you know, investing long term in a company for them to build a factory is this whole stock market thing. And um, how much of it is gambling and these sort of ridiculous games with shorting and longs and um, squeezes that we're seeing now. I think a lot of the world is uncomfortable because of the scale of it. If somebody, you know, gambles a couple hundred dollars, nobody really cares. Someone gambles a couple billion dollars, it actually can maybe affect all of us. So I feel like that's where we're at right now. And I don't know what's gambling. And I'm not sure the people in the middle of the trenches of it right now do either. So I just, I, I hear what you're saying. And definitely um, there were some, some, some of that played out in the great financial crisis where people were, were gambling uh, or way over levered at least um, on certain products and a, a fundamental shift in, in, <clears throat> in a very minor detail uh, or seemingly at the time nearly brought the financial crisis to its knees. I think that um, a lot of that has been repaired. And I think that it's important to understand also in GameStop kind of the scale. So at its peak, GameStop's valuation was uh, $25 billion, I think it is, which is, is hey, uh, is it, is a lot of money. But in the scale of the global financial kind of institutions, um, that's not a very large amount of money. So even if the company completely went bust to zero, uh, that's the amount of capital that would have hypothetically been destroyed in that in that instant, as it were, in theory. Um, the reason something like that happened in the Great Financial Crisis, for, for example, Bear Stearns, their capital that they held uh, on the eve of the financial crisis was 3%. So that means that uh, their equity was 3%. So it was like for every, for every you know, 97% of what they were doing was was on borrowed money. And so just a small move was able to make a very, very large impact. And a lot of that's been regulated out of existence. Yeah, well, I, I have a, I think, I, I don't have a problem with the stock market or even the gambling side of it. It's the financial products that I think people don't understand. Um, that even with the shorts and with the puts and with the buying and the selling, even the the general population who who jumped into this didn't really understand, um, you know, the, the organizers in Reddit definitely understood what a short squeeze is or leveraged capital or why this would work. I think that what they've created though is it's a kind of raiding party on Reddit that uh, is led in a kind of um, organized, disorganized way that can on one hand maybe bring corrections to the market and on the other hand lead to an incredible amount of volatility. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that you're right. I think that a lot of there's, there is a, there is a fundamental problem in that, um, we don't we don't require people to prove that they know what they're doing before um, before investing in the stock market. Now, I I personally don't I'm not advocating for that position. I don't I don't actually believe that that's what we should be doing. Um, but there well, there is a there's a balance in that. You're right. On the one hand, uh, some somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing is jumping into GameStop or we're jumping on Robinhood and playing the stock market like it's a game. Um, on the other hand, it's gonna, kind of, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I want to I want to just jump in to say I don't know how much it is about educated or not educated. That wasn't really the point that that is part of the point, but you know, the uh, mortgage crisis and the leverage, those were that was created by educated investors, so people who knew what they were doing, people who but who were playing a very dangerous game because the, of the financial products um, and because of what was legal in terms of the amounts that you could leverage and the vulnerabilities. So, well, I'm not sure I totally agree with that, meaning derivatives and stuff were written in such a way that even the people who wrote them didn't always understand them. Like, what was the name of the really autistic guy in uh, the, the Big Short was one of the guys who actually took the time to read these 150-page legal documents describing the AAA securities of bundled mortgages that nobody understood. But behind that, there were people like Deutsche Bank, who theoretically does understand what they were doing, investing in, investing not their money, investing pension funds and all sorts of stuff in these AAA rated securities that they apparently, if they understood it, they were fraudulent on a level that I think it's hard for us to comprehend. But I think they actually didn't fully understand the level of risk they were taking and gambling other people's money in these sort of financial instruments. I call it gambling. Oh, but they, I'm sure thought they were allocating capital. Um, I mean, and so that, you know, I and mean, we can take this conversation a number of ways. I, I think that kind of the great financial crisis does serve as a kind of ever looming backdrop. But I think that a lot of its causes uh, and effects were already have been heavily litigated and, and, and since regulated. So I, 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 I like the Sorry, I keep showing. I keep I keep getting you up. I'll let you finish your <laughs> sentence and then I'm going to jump in because I got to bring up Elizabeth Warren because okay. she, she's coming. Like, uh, she's coming for everybody right now. Yeah. What does she have in the new administration? Because she's going to have a big say. In nothing. This. She has zero position in the new administration, and she will not have a big say in the new administration until they figure out how to control the Senate because she's from Massachusetts, which has a Republican governor. So since they're so tight in the Senate, Elizabeth Warren's official position and title in the new administration is, is precisely no, nothing because that, she's anything but a senator. I don't think that defines her oh, influence. Oh, of course it doesn't define. I'm not suggesting it defines her influence. I'm suggesting that it defines her position. Whatever her, her title is, she's like the sheriff. She's riding into town. She has been waiting for at least 10 years, 12, 15 years to be able to come in and regulate. And, um, you know, she's a wild card. Um, she certainly is. And I, I mean, I don't know. I mean... I've, I've spent a lot of time listening to Elizabeth Warren. I disagree with her on a lot of stuff. One thing that's really good about it, one thing that she's really effective at is public speaking. She's a, she's a wonderful speaker. Um, and she's, she, she, she builds arguments um, that seem to make a lot of sense, um, but typically have some, some fundamental flaws. And I mean, I don't, you know, that's just my opinion on her. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit personally scared. I think that, uh, I mean, my general take on government is that um, there are definitely things that are broken and can use some fixing, but I, I don't really trust a heavy regulatory hand to fix the problems that, that, are, that exist. And I don't think that Elizabeth Warren is a purely good actor. She's a political animal like everybody else. Oh, I disagree. But I feel like, I feel like Wall Street exists in Narnia, right? And Elizabeth Warren exists in the real world. And she's 
I don't I don't even know if she's trying to make Narnia into the real world or trying to pull Wall Street out of Narnia. But I, I know that Matthew and I spoke about this many times in terms of debt, like her position on student debt or erasing student debt is so logical. And debt is so imaginary. It's as imaginary in a lot of ways as these puts and derivatives are. Um, and to wipe them out is something that would be so incredibly good for the economy that uh, people don't think like, oh, you can't wipe that out. But it doesn't even really exist except on paper. But I mean, we're getting away from the GameStop. I just think that. I, I <laughs> way, way, way away we're, we're from the GameStop. Way, no, 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 but, but, that, like, but that's fine. We, we, can go, we can go any which direction this conversation. Wait, 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 I, I think there's, there's, it doesn't there's have to stay with the way to tie it. I think there's a way to tie it back, though, because actually, like, talking a lot with Shimon and reading more conservative thinkers, I've realized, like, there was one really great conservative idea I read about wiping out student debt, which was that, why should it just be the taxpayer who, quote, wipes it out? Like, do they pay back the lenders? Or is the cost of, because um, there is going to be a cost. Yes, it's imaginary, but there was real money that went out there and got spent that was lent by somebody with whatever weird backroom, you know, liquidity deals of printing money from thin air. So it's partly imaginary, but it's real. So it's, it's not at all imaginary. I apologize. I, 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 I can't stand by that classificate that, that, that characterization of student debt. It's, it's, it's real debt. Um, and it's real debt that was borrowed by people um, on a promise that might've been maybe not a great promise, but but it really exists, and meaning th th that university. Do you define it? Do you, do you define it as usury? Do you define it as a manipulation of eighteen-year-olds to take on a quarter million dollars of debt that they could never possibly pay back for a philosophy degree? Yeah, with the government did that. No the, yeah, I mean, but this is this is again a problem, right? And then this is why I don't trust governments to regulate it, right? Why did a, that 18-year-old take on a quarter million dollars of student debt? If he had to go in the open market and apply for a loan and say to the bank, hey, Mr. Bank, I'm going to go get a philosophy degree. Please lend me a quarter million dollars so I can do so. The bank would tell him where, to, where the door was. The federal government exactly. decided the federal government decided that it should be in the business of guaranteeing student debt, right, so that that 18-year-old could take out a quarter million dollar loan to go get that philosophy degree, which is ridiculous. And so well, now you're saying, now you're saying, government, okay, it's up to the government to fix it. We're, we're, sure, we're missing, the, the conservative idea I wanted to eject in that was that universities should share the cost of paying it back because universities inflated their tuitions by almost exactly the amount of the loan guarantees. They were like, hey, it's free money. So it's like if there's going to be a bailout of student loans, the cost of paying back that loan shouldn't just be eaten by the banks. It shouldn't just be eaten by the taxpayer. It should actually also be shared by the universities who basically were ripping off both the government and the future earnings of the students to pocket this money. And the reason I think that ties into GameStop is like any of these things, and you're seeing this with some of the hedge funds now, hey, if I lose money or if I lose, quote, other people's money, if I borrow money, if I get leverage to go take this risk in the stock market, um, what happens if I lose? And when people try to, as they say, socialize that loss, 
or when they lose other people's money. I mean, there's a huge amount of moral hazard in it. So any way that the cookie crumbles, somebody's going to lose out pretty big. And I'm not sure they really made a conscious choice about those losses. So let's let's so confine I, it to let's confine so, it to GameStop because I mean I think yeah. the student debt I think the student debt thing is interesting and I'm I'm very happy to continue this conversation on a different uh, live stream and Sarah I'd be happy to extend an invitation back to you to discuss it and we can discuss it in more detail but I, we're, we did come here today to talk about GameStop and I want to address kind of the corollary that you just drew and and GameStop it, it's not I don't think it's I mean look. The, the, the people that were short GameStop at $5 or $4 a share, I mean, in my opinion, they made a huge financial error, and they're going to pay for that. Unfortunately, you're right. They are a hedge fund, and who invests in hedge funds are pension funds, right? So at the end of the day, it's going to be socialized across their investors, but that's still a problem that, I mean, that should go to the advisory committee of the pension fund that decided to allocate to Melvin Capital, for example. Mm. Um, and so that's not, I mean, while you are, while Melvin Capital is socializing that cost because they took undue risk with other people's money, that is the contract that they entered into with the pension fund to manage their money. And pension funds should think better about how they allocate their capital going forward. So those, that money, those losses are, are huge. And that's going to suck for whoever invested in Melvin Capital. But that's what you do when you invest in, in a hedge fund. Um, and I don't, I, mean, I don't cry for hedge funds losing money. I'm sad for small investors who got kind of, that kind of got brought along in the hedge fund game. I mean, I think investing in hedge funds in general is, is, a, is a horrible idea. Um, just for the fact that they take the fees, they, they take their two and 20 or sometimes three and 30, which means that they're getting paid yeah. either way, regardless of what happens. But that's, once again, it's an investment decision. A pension fund or some other fund or some pool of capital decides to allocate to a hedge fund and that hedge fund blows up. Guess what? Tough on you. That's what you let's just like if I bought GameStop and it blew up. Right. It like mm -hmm. blew up well, and went out of business. But uh, what I wanted to bring up, actually, since we're back to GameStop and the idea of other people's money is Wall Street bets with their with their push, the social push that they they gave, you know, with the messaging of hold it, hold it, hold it, you know, which is a terrible message to give people when a <laughs> stock is going to crash. Are they? messing with other people's money but just through social influence like so they, they couldn't have done this without other people's money okay so actually by the mm -hmm. way I, there was a huge there was an article on the cover of this morning's wall street journal about a hedge fund that was owned five percent of gamestop stock at sub 10 at around ten dollars a share okay and they sold out at 400 bucks so that like they actually closed out their position now they didn't buy it on the short squeeze they bought it on the chewing it Right. They bought it on the news. They're like, this stock is worth more than ten dollars. So they amassed a position and they did their fundamental research and they decided it. But I mean, look, all everywhere you look in the world, you end up with, you know, people who are talking some kind of position, especially when you deal with 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 the stock market. And you can't stop that. I mean, that's what if you watch the business news, if, I, if you turn on Bloomberg, <laughs> CNBC, Fox Business, any of these, all they're doing all day is talking about. They're talking their book. Everybody's talking their book. Everybody is um, engaging in some level of social manipulation. And so this is, you know, so there's a couple of things. And this is kind of one of the things that we discussed last time, Matthew and I, towards the end, is that, that you know, we currently have law. There are laws against stock market manipulation. 
and insider trading. These laws exist. One of the problems is you don't have bright line um, regulations that tell you when you're over that long, when you're not over that long. So I don't think they'll, they will investigate this, but let's say they do or prosecute this anyway, they'll probably investigate. If they decide to go after the Wall Street Bets community, they being the Wall Street regulators, go after the Wall Street Bets community for stock manipulation, market manipulation, which, I mean, by, if you read the law, they probably could prosecute them just on the kind of the, the broadness of the law. Um, and I shared with you guys kind of the Mark Cuban video, both of you, um, where they went after him, where he did an interview with Bloomberg a couple of years back about about the SEC and how he got hit with the insider trading action, which he which he beat in court. Um, but the point was, there is no rule. And he, so he, he gives this ridiculous, this ridiculous recount where he calls the SEC and says, I have this information. Can I act on it? And they t they point him to a website. With a where he had to download a PDF of a paper form from 1984 that required him to mail it in and <laughs> give them and give them four to six weeks to get back to them. And he's like, by four to six weeks from now, this information is going to be irrelevant. So, I mean, yeah, our, our regulatory, if we're going to have regulations around insider trading, which we should, and market manipulation, which we should, you need to clarify the rules so that people understand the rules of the road. Well, it's funny, too, because whether it was manipulated or not, I mean, a giant public forum hardly seems like manipulation because it's all, so to speak, publicly available information that everyone's ability. You know, the, 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 the short positions were public and other people, lots of people, not just in Wall Street bits, were free to say, hey, that looks like a really exposed position. I can squeeze these guys. It wasn't like a, a secret. But what what there's a disconnect that I think is totally obvious to both of you because you know how the stock market works, but that's still hard for me to wrap my head around, which is like the theoretical purpose of issuing stock, of a company having stock that's out there in the market, is that the company wants to raise money to do things. That's what issuing stock is for. Trading stocks back and forth between other people in the market is you know, a speculative game and maybe you can get dividends and whatever if you own the stock. But like the point of the stock and the stock price, theoretically, as most people understand, the reason we allow stocks to exist is so a company can raise money and use that money to expand their business. Like even when Amazon was starting, it was like ridiculously overvalued compared to the actual value of their business when they were just selling used books. They were arranging people to sell used books. It was like, oh, that's a nice business. It doesn't make sense that their stock market capitalization is bigger than the country of Norway in 1996, but it was. But what they did was they kept issuing stock and splitting stock and their stock went up, but they took that money and they plowed it into building in this, you know, incredible infrastructure that now is finally making a profit. So that makes sense to me because that's about, quote, rational. It might not have been rational at the time, but people gave Amazon so much money that they actually used that money wisely and they built value. They built a business that had value. GameStop now, you know, it was a losing business in certain ways. It was a brick and mortar business and everybody's as digital and you're not even allowed to go to a video game store now. I don't know why it's worth anything, but whatever. Let's just say they they their their stock market capitalization is now, you know, ludicrously higher. Why shouldn't they be and they obviously had nothing to do with this whole short squeeze thing? But why shouldn't they now say, oh, okay. 
we're going to issue another hundred thousand stock and hundred thousand uh, you know stocks, and then take that money and improve their business. But it's my understanding they're not even allowed to do that. Well, I don't even know that they've actually tried to do that. Uh, I told you in the last, I think I was on the last live stream, but I definitely told I we both discussed this. Is the is the Hertz example? So so I I think that GameStop should be allowed to issue stock, and I think that I think that. That as the stock price stabilizes a little bit, and yesterday it only moved five percent instead of like hundred percent. So right, may, right, maybe maybe you're starting to see the see the company uh, stabilize a little bit. I think first of all, I think that any company should be allowed to issue stock at any time once they have gone through all the regulatory hurdles uh, required to do so. The issue was, and I pointed this out to you, was that with Hertz back in April when the company was bankrupt, and they they actually they actually I believe did issue stock. Um, and then the SEC made them unwind it because they were bankrupt. And there's no rule that says you, a bankrupt company can't, they were in bankruptcy. There's no rule that says a, bankrupt, a company in bankruptcy can't issue stock. And their prospectus said right on it, we are in bankruptcy, right? They weren't like trying to- They weren't lying away. about it. They weren't lying about it. They were very clear. Like they went to the bankruptcy judge and said, hey, the stock price is going crazy. We think that we can raise capital and solve all of our solvency problems by raising capital in the stock market. The bankruptcy judge said, go ahead. And the SEC says, no, you can't, which is, I think, I mean, that's ridiculous. I think GameStop should have been able to issue shares at $400 a piece. Why not? I mean, that- I mean, maybe, they, maybe they can. It's not, this has happened. No, really yeah, correct. Maybe they could have. That's correct. Well, they wouldn't have been able to because it does take a couple of days. It's not like you can just push a button and say, and shoot. No, I'm know. saying, but also yeah, yeah. if I was, if I was the, on the board of GameStop, mm -hmm. what I would do right now is find some killer CEO. Uh, like from They the, just did. The they just got, they just put the CEO of Chewy.com. And I would be like, you know, this is our plan. This is our roadmap. Buy shares in it because we're we're on the comeback. And that, from a behavioral economics point of view, the interesting thing is that this GameStop in flux of money um, can actually create a reality where GameStop can actually be a valuable company, can actually use that money the way it's intended, and use it for growth, innovation, and, be, you know, it's uh, next chapter in terms of where it goes as a company. And that's what's really cool, because if somebody, if these groups, you know, within, uh, within Wall Street, it's pretty insular. But outside, you know, the, the outside world has just learned that this is possible. The, the, the outside world, even, even the Redditors who've been in on this, you know, because this, uh, you know, thread has existed for what, like two or three years or something. I mean, the subreddit. But they've now seen like that this works. And if they see companies that they want to short, or if they see companies that they want to see succeed, they know, they now know how to rally capital um, in a way that's never been done before. And that's going to, that's going to change the future of, uh, or it's just going to turn them into a glorified, like a an actual hedge fund. Well, yeah, I was going to say it's not like what they're doing is new. It just hasn't been done by the so-called little guys before. It's obviously been done by the Jim Cramers and hedge funds of the world. These sort of games go back and forth all the time, and I think that's part of why. Just to play this sort of dumb outsider for a second, I think 
a lot of us who don't like live in the trenches of, of selling and buying stocks or, or, you know, r running companies with leverage and all this sort of thing. I mean, I've dipped my toe in that, but let's, let's assume that I'm stupid for a second. A lot of people are right now questioning like what the hell capitalism e even is. And when they see this giant sort of bubble around GameStop, I mean, and then you see Ted Cruz and AOC nominally agreeing on anything. I think everyone is really confused and trying to figure out why the hell we have a system like this that allows a bunch of, you know, the stereotype of the Redditors right now is that they're a bunch of guys who've moved back home with their parents' basement and they're using their stimulus check to, to screw a hedge fund. And everyone's like, what, what are these games that we're allowing to to be this central to our so-called free market capitalist system. Like something is completely out of whack and we don't know what's going on. So uh, there's a couple of things that I think led to this. And I, look, I don't have any problem with this, with this phenomenon. I think it's great. I mean, I think that if people want to get invested and get, be involved in the stock market, that's fine. I think that you need to put a very big sign at the front door that explains in fairly simple terms, you know, the, the old concept of caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware, and know know what you're doing. Recognize the risks that you're that you're that you're dealing with. Um, but I mean, one of the things that allowed this to happen is this this boom of commission free trading, which which took off a year ago. And so mm -hmm. the GameStop phenomenon is really the first. It's really the first example of a concentrated bet that's kind of fueled by the by the internet, right, and by retail investors. It's not the beginning of the rise of retail investors. And I think that it is important. I mean, I think as a society, we should be teaching people more about, um, about, about, about understanding allocating capital or even understanding you know, financial literacy just in general. Like most people might not even know what a stock is. And uh, like I said before, and we kind of started, the stock market is part capital allocation machine and part, part casino. And we allow no, no, both no, no, of those no, no, things no, no, to no, exist no, in our world. Uh -uh. I'm not going to let this fly. Please. People know what a stock is. Not People do I, not I, know I actually, what a put option and, and, on and uh, derivative are. And that's that's where things get messed up because stocks make sense. But okay, so, all the so, financial okay. product around it, that's what, you know, like – People understand stocks. Matthew explained well, it. Like you put money people, into a company for growth and you own a part of that company in return. That makes total sense. You would be surprised how many people in this country actually fail to answer that question um, on, on a, just a simple on a simple ask. Okay. But, but that's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you and I'll say people, look, I'm, I'm all in favor of assuming that people uh, are able to educate themselves about the risks that they take. I, I, I'm opposed to nanny state policies in general. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. So, I mean, I'm saying, I, because, because, because you don't understand what a derivative sense, is. But I'm saying put derivatives make sense. Put derivatives. Look, I, I, I actually, they only make sense I, if it's a casino. I, no, I disagree with you 100%. I personally do a lot of investing in options. And I can explain to you the financial ins and outs of how they work and why they exist. And they are an important feature of the stock market and, and of that same capital allocation machine. The fact that they're complicated doesn't mean that they're gambling. They're, they're, and they're not actually that complicated. It, it's relatively simple. I, are you kidding? I, I, Being able to bet on, and make money on a company on the way up 
and on the way down and offering insurance on whether it's going this way or that way, does that even qualify as the actual stock market? So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, Sarah. You own a stock, okay? You own a stock and the stock goes up. The stock goes up, right? And you think that the stock has a value, right? You think, oh, I think that, that, let's forget GameStop for a second. Let's take Amazon.com, okay? I don't know where it trades today, but let's say it's trading at $3,000, okay? You own Amazon. You bought it at, uh, you bought it at, I don't know, 2000 You're up a nice 50% on your money, right? You don't want to sell the stock because you, you believe in the future of Amazon, but you do have some concerns, right? So is it completely unreasonable that you might want to buy insurance against your downside risk? Yes. Why is that unreasonable? You, the small investor, not 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 some Wall Street. Uh, that, like uh, we can get into derivatives it's trading in a minute. It's the basic understanding of a derivative. But one minute, you buy insurance on your car, you buy insurance on your house, you buy insurance on your cell phone. Some people buy insurance on their washing machine. Why can't you buy insurance on your financial products that you own? It's gone so far from that, though. So far from the capitalization being mobilized Let's, for companies. If 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 the insurance was like a little bit of like, I mean, the insurance, whatever. We could have a whole other episode no, no, about I, my no, opinion no, no, on I, insurance. I, 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 I am I am limiting my question, and I know it's I know it's limited. I'm limiting it to a very narrow, but no, narrow perspective I don't. I, is, I don't think you, that you should. I don't. I think that's where the gambling happens. I don't think the gambling uh, happens. In, no, but in, I, 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 I think actually that's the part of it that, in a sense, it's not gambling. It really is more like insurance. Like so. So the thing with car insurance is that it's based on these actuarial tables that. Um, you know, a certain amount of people are going to have accidents overall in a year, you know, and it's a big enough pool that they can calculate that with some accuracy. And so they're, they're not allowed to sell the insurance for less than a certain premium because look, you could outcompete other insurance companies by saying, Hey, instead of being a thousand dollars a year for your car insurance, I'm going to start charge you $200 a year. Well, boom, I'll outcompete all the other car insurance companies. But if there's the expected number of accidents in the, the state in the year, I'm going to go bankrupt. And I might have just pocketed my fees. It's like a, it, it's kind of a giant fraud if you don't charge the minimum. So well, it's, it's OK. The, so insurance is regular. Is what you mean to say is that insurance is a, regu- it's a regulated all car insurance. insurance regulated. It's a regulated industry. Right. But Be- stock, stock options and puts and stuff. They function as a market regulation on the fluctuations and the volatility of the stocks, but they're not regulated in the same way. They are. They are. They, Just they're not. They're not. They. They. They are regulated in the same way. So. The, so, um, insurance is. Insurance is regulated. Insurance is regulated in the sense that the it's the, the insurance company doesn't actually dictate the price of insurance. Sorry, the regulator doesn't actually dictate the price of insurance. The regulator's job is to make sure. That the person selling insurance can cover the nut if if the actuarial tables uh, you know if, if if some of the tail risk is realized does that make sense? Meaning well, but that, that's what Melvin Capital couldn't cover the tail risk. Right, but 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 Melvin, but there's a financial system behind that, right? It's not like those bets got unpaid, right? Meaning Melvin Capital transacted their business through probably a prime brokerage firm, which I don't know who they are, but doesn't matter, and that that brokerage. Their job is to make sure 
that Melvin Capital doesn't 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 blow up doesn't blow up right. And if Melvin Capital does blow up, they're behind it. So op, the options business, and so I happen to look of all of the people on this call, I actually have. I have a I have a subject matter expertise in options. I work in it on a daily basis. Of all I, the people on this call, I, I do. have an expertise. I do have an expertise okay. in this. And you I, you have expertise. Is, okay, you have expertise in a lot of things. You have a lot of things. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. So when you sell an option, and by the way, I did sell options yesterday on GameStop. Okay. And I and I'll and I'll and I'm happy to walk through and explain how that works and what under, underpins that trade so that you can understand it and how I came to the rationale to do that. But when you sell an option, there's a, there's a capital requirement. So if, and, and, and it's all regulated, it's all, it's all very carefully regulated behind the lines as to how much, how much capital I have to hold against the option that I sold. And interestingly enough in GameStop right now, there is zero, it's a hundred percent capital requirement on anything GameStop which is what triggered some of the other problems in GameStop with Robinhood, et cetera. But right now, normally, if I wanted to sell an option on a company, I don't have to put up the whole, like, let's say the, let's say the stock is, let's say we sell an option at $10, right? Which means that I'm, I sell a put option at $10, which means that if you bought the option, you have the right to sell me the stock at $10. If the stock is greater than $10, uh, I just keep the premium or the, the insurance premium that you paid me. If the stock is under $10, I have to buy the stock from you under $10. So now there's a there's there's a regulatory formula on, that is that requires how much money I need to have in my account to hold on to that option. And if I dip below that regulatory formula number in my bank account, in my brokerage account, I get a margin call. It's a federal mandated margin call. And if I don't meet that margin call, I get liquidated. It doesn't matter what the price is. I mean, I either, I either have to put more capital in or I get a margin call. And if I don't put the if, if I don't put the money in and I don't get the margin call and the bank liquidates me and they lose money, that's their loss because it was their job to make sure that I had enough capital. And that's where the regulation kind of comes in on this part of the market. Now, um, so on GameStop right now, the regular the the no banks are extending any leverage on GameStop right now, none. So yesterday, I personally in my own brokerage account sold five contracts of GameStop stock with a strike price of $5, which means that if the stock price is under over $5, I made the insurance premium. If it's under $5, I have to buy the stock. And this put goes all the way out to January. Okay. So it's 10, 11 months from now. Okay. I collected a premium on that of a dollar. And so I looked at the market and saw there's a misallocation of capital because I believe, and this still belief, I'm still taking risk. I believe that the company is going to be worth more than $5 or more than $4 come January because it was worth $4 two years ago. Now that's a rational bet. It's a rational decision that based on kind of past performance, I thought about the company. I look at the prospects. I happen to think that, that the invigoration of the founder of Chewy.com into the board and into the management of the company is going to lead it to turn around its business. So I think it's a pretty smart move on my part to be willing to sell insurance to somebody at $5. Nobody forced anybody to buy that from me, right? Now, the, the, but from a capital perspective, I sold five contracts, which means I'm on the hook for 500 shares of GameStop at $5. That's $2,500. My brokerage account today is holding that entire $2,500 against my account, which means if I had an account of zero, if my account was zero on day one, I would have to put 
$2,500 into an account to, to, to make the, of cash, to make the position that I just, that I just put on yesterday. So what's okay? your upside? Explain my upside. the upside. Yeah. Explain the my upside, upside of the transaction yeah. that you just did. Yeah, yeah. My upside is I, I am literally an insurance. I literally sold insurance. So my upside is if the stock is more than $5 on the expiration date of the, of the sale, right? If the stock is more than $5, then I get to keep the dollar that I collected in premium. Minus taxes and whatever, but I get to keep that. It actually seems, I mean, it's, uh, it seems crazy to me that somebody would bother paying a dollar to insure it at five bucks. Oh, it was crazy. And that's why I did it. And by the way, like, I, I, like, I specialize uh, in this. I'd pay to insure it two hundred dollars. I'd pay to insure it at fifty dollars, but at five dollars. Okay. Like, so now who, we can. Who made that deal with you? By the way, like what? Did, a week what ago. A week ago, that same option, that same five dollar strike for the same expiration date, traded hands at a dollar forty five. And had I known about it then, had I noticed it on that day, I'd have sold that all day long. Because I think sure. that I I think that the person who took the other side of that trade, I, I'm not gonna say moron because I don't presume to know what people's strategies are and what their what their fears and risks are. I have no idea what drove that person to pay a dollar. All I did was I looked at the market price and I made a decision. And I don't ever presume that that the people that I'm dealing with are idiots. I just think that my, for me, the risk reward in that in that in that transaction skewed positive. Am I taking risk? Absolutely, I'm taking. Well, wait a second, though. But your risk is limited. Your limited your risk is structured to twenty five hundred dollars. Well, I would never value. sell a call option, for example. Right. I was going to say so. The, the the risks in the other direction are theoretically infinite, which is part of the reason the squeeze is on. And that that strikes me as a lot more like these poker games, like in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, where a guy can come in there and he managed to come up with a hundred thousand dollar ante, but the guy raised him like whatever it was, a quarter of a million pounds or, or something. And it was like he had no way to get out of the game and he lost all of his money because he couldn't even call to see the other guy's cards. And therefore he was on the hook for a quarter of a million um, dollars or whatever it was. The point is that there's, a, there, there's an infinite risk on the other side of this. So we do allow this sort of casino. Not on my trade. No, no, you're trying. You made a good. You made a good thing, but like, I don't know. Like, so, but this is why I think it's important that people under. Okay, so first of all, I believe different types of options. There are okay. There are there are certainly abuses in our financial system, and I think that some of we can discuss some of the some of the ways to try to fix some of those some of those things. But um, there are legitimate reasons to have derivatives, uh, put and puts and calls on the basic level, their financial products that make sense. They're complicated. They make sense. Now, should you, okay. should you need a certain amount of capital? And by the way, you do like in it, at Morgan Stanley, where I do my personal banking, you cannot trade options unless you have, you have a certain amount of money in your bank account. You have to, and you have to, you have to, so ass- I'm going to say that's the elitism. That's part of Why the elitism. Is elitism. Well, because I don't. Uh, here's. Oh no! I, I, let me finish though. Whole... I, let me finish what I said. It's not just a Fine. dollar value that allows you to trade options. It's not just oh, I'm I'm rich and therefore I can trade options. It's also uh, and it's, it's not. Of, uh, I mean, 
It's not about that. They want to know. I'm an accredited investor. It's not, no, it's not even a credit investor. I'm not that rich. Wish I was, but I'm not. Uh, but the number is like $50,000 that you need in your account, which is a large amount of money, right? But it's out actually not. Out of reach to the average American. What? Out of reach to the average out American. Reach, out of reach correct. to the average but American. But more importantly, more importantly than the, more importantly than the um, $50,000 requirement is there's a questionnaire you have to fill out, which basically kind of, it's not a test, but it's like I have, I recognize that that I can lose more than I put in, hypothetically. I recognize that, you know, this and that and the other thing. And you have to kind of affirm that you understand the risks, whether or not you actually read it or you just check through the boxes. They want to know how long you've, you've had experience with options before. And uh, and there's a difference also, by the way, and this is kind of important. There's There are what are called naked options and there are covered options, right? So what I talked to you about before when I asked you about selling and buying insurance on a stock, if you own the stock, that would be called a covered option because you own the stock and you want to be able to sell. Naked option is what I did. I said, I don't own the stock, right? I don't have any I don't have any financial interest in the stock whatsoever, but I am willing to sell insurance to somebody who does want to buy insurance on the stock. Um, sorry, carry on. So it's not, I, I think no, that- No, no, what I was going to say, what seems so super elitist, whether or not, when we're talking about regulation, whether, and let's put aside whether or not I believe this should have been regulated years ago, or whether I believe that it should be regulated now. I think it's so telling that this game is being played, you know, short squeeze this, uh, whatever, everything's, uh, you know, between these hedge funds. And, uh, you know, if Ted Cruz and AOC have come together, oh, we need to regulate what now that the average person has figured it out now that the public has figured it out now that people outside of wall street are playing the game now we have to regulate it that's what that's what strikes me as like a certain level of of like elitism i'm not sure i agree i I think it was the reverse though i think ted cruz and aoc were both coming in on the side of saying like no let them play it out whereas a lot of people in the middle were saying oh it needs to be regulated because little guys are getting in on wall street I mean, the other piece of it was that Robinhood sort of Robinhood, which was the in for these small people to get in on these games, suddenly shut off the ability of the little people to play their games. That and I think that specifically doing. what Ted Cruz and AOC were agreeing about, that that was that was ridiculous. So that, I now, think we can all agree that that was wrong. And oh, that's because uh, of their personal percent. interest in Citadel no, with I, Citadels. It's okay. I think that and I, right, I, right, right. I think that. Okay, I don't, I don't presume to know all of the ins and outs of what caused Robinhood to make that decision, um, and I think that's going to be thoroughly investigated. And if there was anything untoward done there, um, there's going to be large financial consequences for it. And I think that it's, I think that it was ridiculous. But what happened in those days in the market is that Robinhood doesn't have. All like they don't own the cattle. Robinhood allows people to trade on leverage, right? They allowed everybody to trade on leverage. And all of a sudden, you know that more than half of Robinhood accounts hold GameStop stock. And part of that is because Robinhood itself was handing out GameStop stock six months ago. Like they did this thing, bring a refer a friend, get a free share. And they like randomly allocated a stock to your account. It was either GameStop, Ford, or Berkshire Hathaway or something like that. Right. And like <laughs> that's so ironic. Nine, yeah, ninety percent of people got GameStop stock through that. I don't know if it's ninety. I made that number up, but like a lot, like 
obviously they're giving out the $4 stock the most, right? And so a lot, I, I have friends who trade with Robinhood that own GameStop only because Robinhood gave it to them. That's so, hilarious. It is hilarious. So more than half of Robinhood accounts hold GameStop or held GameStop stock last week. And so all of the sudden, whatever Robinhood's um, regular margin allowances were on the back end, meaning how much cash did Robinhood have with their clearing house, right? With the custodial bank that holds their shares, how much cash did they have on the books then when all of the sudden, when all of a sudden a stock that a week ago, I, Robinhood, only need to put up, like, like let's say the stock was $10, I only have to put up $5 or $3 or whatever the number is with my custodial account to collateralize the, the $10 stock. All of a sudden the stock shoots to 400, everybody wants to buy it. And now, and now my custodial bank is saying, I can't borrow anything on it, which means I need to pump, Robinhood needs to pump a lot of money into their custodial bank to back up the fact that the stock got volatile. Now, I think they made the wrong decision. Right. I think they made the wrong decision, but they were they made a decision under fire of I need to I Robinhood need to come up with I think it was like a billion dollars to give their custodial account because they didn't have the cash. And and this is this is maybe where regulation is important and where regulation can fix that because because this was unanticipated, right? What happens is on a normal basis in most in Reg T, which is the which is the regulatory framework that that governs normal investment. Okay, every day, not hedge fund institutions, et cetera, allows banks to lend. Uh, you need fifty percent of the of the of the of the share of the share price to buy the stock, right? And then they have a and then there's a maintenance requirement, which typically hovers around sixty five percent, which means that you need thirty five percent of the dollars on a on a daily basis to to not get a margin call. If it falls below that, if your account falls below that threshold, you get a margin call. And so when that switches, and that's across most stocks, but then every bank has little rules that they implement on their own. This is not a regulatory requirement. They implement on their own either to make that margin smaller, make it harder for people to borrow. They can't make it easier for you to borrow. They can only make it harder, right? And then what's happening is when there's a massive volatility event in any stock, like GameStop shot from 10 to 400 in a matter of weeks, right? So nobody in their right mind is going to allow me to buy GameStop at 400 on margin. And let's say I only have to put up 200 to buy a $400 stock because that stock could be 10 tomorrow. It was 10 yesterday. Right. So, so all, what other banks are saying is they're recognizing that this massive, very quick move in GameStop from 10 to 400 could easily reverse itself as it did. Not all the way back down to 10, but a very large percentage of the way there. Right. And so they're saying, well, I think yesterday was like a hundred. I, I I can look it up where it is where it is trading today, but it's it's, it's in the hundred something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But um, well, just just to pull apart, there's two words there that I want to call attention to. One is regulatory or regulation. Not all regulations are government regulations. Like a lot of, especially clearinghouse banks, have a set of and the SAC are not necessarily governmental like they 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 all agree to a high degree of self-disclosure and self-scrutiny in order to ensure that other people don't insider trade things like this so re regulation more you know people say more or less regulation they almost always mean regulation that benefits me 
versus regulation that benefits whoever I'm just fighting with in these these poker games. Um, So regulation, I I hate it when people say like, oh, there shouldn't be any regulation. They just mean there shouldn't be the regulation that I don't like. Um, But the other word that bothered me here was leverage, which, you know, for the financially literate, leverage is an incredibly important word. And for those of, of whom are not in that sort of trenches every day, leverage is is a very very tricky word and, and and like you said being able to make these trades on robin hood or whatever that are as they say leveraged means you don't have the full amount of money there to back it up and that that is something the rest of the world just if, if you're just an ordinary person just paying your bills every month with the amount of money that you get in the paycheck and other people are somehow able to bet you know, they're somehow able to get a $400 thing when they only had $200. People are like, wait, what, what, where'd you get an extra $200 from? It was like, you know, out of thin air. So, so this whole leverage thing, and I'm oversimplifying it some, but it's like. And, and, and that's what Robin Hood democratized. Right, 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 exactly. And so Robin Hood, Robin Hood democratized just being able to trade, buy and trade, you know, buy and sell stocks. No, oh, and but, on leverage, Robin Hood offers leverage. Exactly. So those are two different big things that Robin Hood is getting, letting. I would say though, it's really even though, even though it looked really bad uh, when they stopped uh, letting people trade, most of the people who were trading at that point on Robin Hood were suckers. Like. <laughs> Okay. Say more. I mean, I mean. By, by the way, the stock yeah, today is sixty. So I just looked. The stock is sixty three dollars. So this, when Robin Hood didn't let people was, buy at four hundred, right? When pe- they were doing people a favor, like well, uh, ultimately, uh, ultimately, like I'm not, I'm not saying on like a theoretical point of view, you know, people should be allowed to make whatever dumb mistakes they want. But what they when when they stopped. That trading in hindsight. I'm saying in hindsight. I'm saying I'm saying the people who were buying at that price are were the people who were trying to get in in a very speculative way, probably with no understanding, because the Wall Street bets crowd, they bought in at five, ten, twenty, whatever, and they were probably all selling at that point. Or, you know, like they were, they weren't the ones who were buying at 400. Maybe they were holding, but they weren't buying at that point. The only people who were buying at that point were the really kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, un, uneducated, I don't want to say uneducated investors, unexper- inexperienced investors, I, I, I guess would be the best way to say it. And so that the and this is always the challenge, right? I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of, like you said, Sarah, let everybody do what they want to do. It's your money. You, you, but, but, but you should understand the risks. And I'm not suggesting that. So regulations' job is, and what regulation does is, regulation says it's my job to make sure you understand the risks, right? That you of what you're of what you're dealing with. Um, and it's, well, a, it's well, a delicate. Robin Hood, then maybe they did make the right choice because if they couldn't capitalize and they couldn't at a 400 is a share, you know, then the only, the only thing that they could do is stop trading. They could have also issued every one of their accounts that held Robinhood stock, a margin call, for example. 
and then threatened to threaten to liquidate, which I think they did do to some people, but I'm not 100% sure exactly. I don't know. I mean, and this is all kind of fresh and coming out. I've, I've read some complaints online of people that had, had issues. Um, but, uh, and, and it'll, like I said, it'll all come out over time. I don't know what they did or whether or not they made the right move or whether there was a better move they could have made at the time. But just so I, I just think it's important to understand kind of the fundamentals that stand behind the decision they made. It's not just like, Oh, Robin, Hood was just trying to bail out their buddies on wall street. I don't, I don't think that that's the reality. I think, I mean, there may be a piece or an element of that, but there's also fundamental realities that underpin that. If that right. makes sense. So yeah. I, I, I think that's important because I mean nuance is important here because they the 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 narrative that gets pushed out is oh you know they're just trying to protect their Wall Street buddies which isn't I mean there are hedge funds on both sides of this trade in every which direction I mean that's that's because hedge funds what they do is they play the stock market right they they, they play both see, sides they play whatever side make is good they think is going to make them money on a given day and I think that that I think that that makes a lot of sense because their job. As their function in a capitalist society is to keep markets relatively efficient. Now, efficiency is something that happens in the long run. I mean, they teach what's called the efficient market hypothesis in 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 in, in finance classes at both the bachelor's and the master's level. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't believe in efficient. Like, I mean, I think in the long run the market is efficient, but in the short run, you know, there's my favorite one of my favorite stock market quotes is from Benjamin Graham, and he says. That in the short run the market is a voting machine, and in the long run it's an adding machine, and and that kind of encapsulates kind of this thing we started with is this idea that that Wall Street is part capital allocation mechanism, part casino, and it's really important to understand which side of it you're on. Look, I go to casinos when they were open before COVID. I go to casinos, right? I Sometimes play craps, for example, which I recognize the my expected return from craps on just a purely probabilistic basis is negative. I'm likely to lose money. But I go to the casino. I get free drinks at the table. I have a great time because the social games are high-fiving when you're winning. Everybody's having a good time. But I walk in the door recognizing that I'm likely to lose my money. And so I pull out a certain amount of money at the beginning of the night and say, this is what I'm willing to lose. And I, I try to calibrate that amount of money to what I would spend to have a good time not in a casino, like dinner and a movie with my wife. Right, although there's a couple of people. But but I have seen people, I I have seen people in casinos who are literally gambling their life away. I was, I I mean, I I, I was, I I was, I I started to tell you the other day this story, Sarah, when we were talking about this on the pre, like when we decided to, to do this together. Is I was sitting at a casino at a at a pie gal table. Pie gal is a game that is notorious. It's hard to win and it's hard to lose. So it's a, like a game that you can typically sit in a casino for hours and just not go anywhere with your money. If you just like sitting in a casino and gambling, you know, you don't you don't win a lot, you don't lose a lot. It's not a very vol the volatility is low. And this this guy shows up and takes a loan for thirty thousand dollars from the house, right? The guy couldn't walk. He was so enormous. He had to pull up in an electric wheelchair, barely moved his rear end from the electric wheelchair into the into the stool at the table. He sits down at the table. He signs a loan for $30,000. While they're going to get the $30,000 in chips, he pulls $20,000 out of his pocket. Right? And he proceeds to gamble that $45,000 and basically lose everything. Basically in a matter of like an hour, which was... I mean, it's, it was unheard of. And 
I don't know. I mean, the guy was, I mean, I mean, my wife says that he was basically committing suicide. Like, like that was her kind of her thought about kind of the situation of what was going on. And it was sad. It was, it was hard to watch, by the way. It, it really changed the dynamic of the table. It was not fun. It went from, I went from having a good time to having not good time watching this person literally destroy amounts of capital of his own capital. I mean, the casino made money that just like boggled my mind. Right. Well, this, this, this is reminding me like a lot of these, you know, big hedge funds or, or, or big trader positions. I mean, it seems to happen with some regularity in the market that it turns out that some of these big hotshot traders or really well-known hedge funds or whatever are, are massively miscalculating their sort of tail end risks, their black swan risks. And in a way that is and I feel like I need more education and Chim, when you started to help me with this about the idea of moral hazard and the idea of like what it means when people have the incentive to get fees and, and bonuses for big volume trades, but not actually, um, you know, the level of risk that they take is, is, is insane. And it, it, it makes those of us who, who like to pretend that there's some positive of social utility to our sort of capitalist system. Like it's supposed to be that capital is allocated for people taking, you know, innovation and risks for the purpose of building things that have some social good. And there used to be things where corporate charters could actually be revoked if a corporation was no longer serving the, <laughs> the, uh, the public good, which I think would actually be a really wonderful way to restore the market process to the ethics of companies. But like if, if somebody's not even ethical and they're in this market, I think we used to pretend that greed because of the risk side of things was enough of a check to sort of make there be, as you say, aggregate in the aggregate in the long term, there's efficient allocation of capital and the ethics are implicit in like what becomes profitable and what isn't. But when we're seeing these sort of just like massive, ridiculous, um, you know, bets that are that, that are lost it just it seems like ethics has nothing to do with this and when you know half the country can't even make their paycheck and isn't even allowed to go leave their house to go look for work uh, you know I, I i feel like that's part of the reason there's this massive questioning of kind of the entire system because there's this like weird casino game out of control or it looks like that from the outside right. and that's that, that's where we start so so there's a difference between mispricing risk and gambling Ah, say more. So you started by talking about mispricing, that, that they're, not, they're not accounting for their risk and not thinking about black swan events, right? But they're, they're like, mispricing risk says, I, I looked at this company and I thought, I, I, went, I went through the kind of the, the, the fundamentals of the trade and came up and decided that this trade is more, I have a high probability of success of making money if I engage in this action. Okay. And I'm, I, I miss something in my equation that leaves me not fully understanding what my risks are and maybe tilts the, tilts the probability a little against me, or in reality, you know, if you think about what a black swan is, a black swan, the, the notion of black swan is that the the precise probability of a specific thing happening is 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 is, is zero or or effectively zero, but of a specific thing happening, 
but the probability of something happening is one, right? And so, and that's why these black swan uncommon events are a lot more common than, than, than you would expect them to, because there's an infinite number of these extreme tail events that could happen. And, and this is very well laid out and it's complicated reading, but if you read the black swan by, by, Nassim Taleb, you'll, you'll, you, he kind of it's gets funny, it. because I've read the black, I've read that, I've read it. So and, and, he, I know. And, he, and he explains that. And so that's kind of where, why, and so his argument in the black swan is that black swan events are more common and explain a lot more of reality and will define a lot of the more of the future than we expect them to. But that's, I think we're, we're digressing from the point that I, I, have, I have a question. <laughs> I have a question for both of you. That's on, on topic. Yeah. Okay. Wall street bets. The, the guys who are at the core of this play. If, um, if you're following them on Reddit, or even if you're not, if they put out, you know, their next target, would you follow, uh, follow on if they were like, okay, I think they said like AMC is next or something. Would you buy AMC? Personally, I, I yeah, might personally. I'm saying I personally. Yeah, look, I if, would, they, if they say, I'm like, AMC here's a hundred bucks. I, I'm not gonna yeah. put my life savings okay. on it, but so, I'd be so like, so, so personally, I, I, and I, it's, I think it's a very on point question because this is the this is what I was saying. There's a difference between mispricing risk and gambling, and and that and that difference lies in if 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 Wall Street bets comes out and says. AMC, which is already kind of come and gone as a trade also, but like whatever stock it is, then I will look at the fundamental stock. Like I, I told both of you, and I've said this before, I actually was involved in the GameStop as a company in 2016 or 2017. Um, and I, I, I did a fundamental analysis of their business and I came to the conclusion that they were going out of business, but slowly and that the internet may, um, the internet may, um, may accelerate that trend. And so my, the fund that I work for, um, we, they sold some insurance positions against GameStop because our projection was that the demise was going to be slower than Wall Street was at that point pricing in. Um, but it's, it's about looking at, um, I would, uh, sorry, I went off topic there. I apologize. But the point is, if I would have noticed that GameStop was 140% short at $4, I like to think that I would have bought that if I was watching Wall Street bets, but I would have done the research, if that makes sense. I would have looked into it and said, I'm oh, that makes that sense. I'm not just going to jump in. I'm not just going to jump can't. in and buy a stock. Well, you can. Yeah, I don't you have, can. You know, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy and I don't care. And just like you said, you'd walk into a casino with an amount of oh, money yeah. you're ready to lose. I'd be like, okay. Go uh, for it. You know, Wall I support, Street I support your right to do that. To, I'm going to I take wouldn't. like. $50 a month. No, I'm talking like small amounts of money just to be mm -hmm. in on the game. Just, you know, just to see what they can do in terms of like corporate rating, you know, whatever, whatever it is. We like, should make a Wall Street bets ETF is what you're saying. Yeah. No, no, but you, you're, you're making a good like, point. I will yeah, that's gambling though. But you, but yeah, like, sorry, you recognize yeah, that's I'm gambling. Like, okay, fine. I, say, I, I, I support your right to do that. I would say for I, the fun of it, I would follow wait, them and I'd be like, I will take this risk. I'll put $50 here, $100 there, like money that I could lose and, mm -hmm. and 
you know, yeah. and just to see, because I would, I'm going to say right now, I'm going to make a prediction, right? Yeah. I would say out of the next 10 plays that they're going to try, because they're going to continue after this, at least one of them is going to go bananas the way, well, the way uh, GameStop did. Sure, Odds but are. if you didn't sell GameStop at 400 and you bought it anywhere north of 60, you're underwater. No, I'm saying now I would follow them now. <laughs> you know, no. so, so there's, there's I would number. buy it the five dollars, ten dollars, whatever, and I okay. would have my own metric of you know when this goes up by ten x, I'll sell this amount. When this goes okay, up by fifty x, uh, well, so, so wait a second. That's back to the that's back to the mispricing risk and gambling, right? But but right, but 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 mispricing risk and gambling. Like if you um are if you flip that equation around, like, so basically Wall Street Bets has proven they're a market mover now. They're able to get enough people on board that they can move a market on a stock, regardless of the underlying value of the stock. Yeah. Right? No stock is worth more than 140% short. It's just physically impossible, right? But, but like, it, 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 this bubble had more to do with the short squeeze than it did to do with the underlying value of GameStop. It, it, it was I'm basically relevant. Um, but imagine a, a couple of giant hedge funds that have the ability to throw a few billion dollars around, decide to screw all of the ordinary little people who have money invested in, I don't know, Amazon or Apple or, or Berkshire Hathaway, or, or it almost doesn't matter what, because it has nothing to do with the underlying value of the stock. If they have some way to just throw a massive wrench into the market by throwing a few billion dollars around, can't they screw a whole bunch of little guys the way little guys just screwed Melvin? I Papp think, first of all, this is a totally separate question. First of all, the question was, would you, for the fun of it or for seriousness, would you put some money into this game following Wall Street bets? And, you know, do you think that their next 10 plays out of those next 10 plays that another one of them would probably strike the same way GameStop did? Because I agreed, think agreed. it's not uh, quite the same question. That so, was the question. Because okay, I I'll answer the question is, straight up. The answer, the answer to A is no. I would not do that. That's personal. Okay. Um, and B, I, I, I it, I'm not sure. And I, I think it's important to recognize if you go to Wall Street Bets, there are a hundred ideas that they're shopping. Right. This happens to be the one that blew up. Right. And now, and now they have, now they have some clout. And I believe that that clout in certain circumstances has the ability to create a massive disruption in the market in a, in a specific stock, not the market as a whole. And I think that the world today is massively overestimating, massively overestimating the, the power that, that stands behind that. Um, GameStop is a small cap company with a relatively illiquid float right, with a relatively liquid float and a high short interest and a small float. And so they they hit this kind of perfect trifecta and it ended up with a massive home run. But the the they, they last Thursday tried to move silver, right? And it moved a little bit in her day, but it didn't, you're not, you're not going to see that 100x kind of move. That's it's just not possible because the, the silver market... 10. Right. I, so I, I, I think, think that there's a good chance that that this is not the last we've heard of Wall Street bets or other or, or, and, and, or, the, or other organized capital of retail investors um, getting to, banding together to make a large play on something. 
But once I think again, this is, where, it's this is where I get to say that I yeah. have an expertise. Please. As a behavioral economist, I have an expertise in faith, belief, social following, and money. And, and, and financial decision makings. And the pure fact that they were even one time able to move the market means that they have future social capital. Oh, for sure. That they, that they can, you know, that they can leverage, you know, it's not the same use of the word as we yeah, 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 no, before. No, no. But well, actually, you know, it, is, it, it is the same use. It but, is but, essentially but, the same, but that they can leverage this win and people mm-hmm. have, will have, um, you know, a kind of cognitive bias towards listening to them, whether they're right or wrong. Just like I said, and I'm not even immune to it. Yeah, I will put money towards not a lot, not, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll put I'm in lockdown. I can't go out like there's no fun. There's not like that. There's no there's no entertainment for me. Like there's no movies. There's no. So I'll like take the money I would have spent at a restaurant and I'll put it towards one of their like crazy ideas. And we'll see. But like they just established the social capital to move markets. And that well, there's two options, I think, from here, right? Either they continue their momentum and they get another win within people's very short window, right? People, I think there's a three-month max amount of time that they have. This is just a projection to move a stock or a market or to have another win because two years from now, it's going to be have disappeared completely. Uh, they're going to have to get wins on the table, but if they get more than two or three, then they're going to be as established as a large crowdsourced hedge fund. It'll be the first crowdsourced distributed hedge fund, which yeah. I think is, in, which I think is interesting. And I, I look, I, fascinating. I, I love I love it when people win. I'm very happy that a lot of retailer investors have won uh, in this trade. And I'm, I'm sad that a lot have also lost. I mean, I think that you have to, but I, to me, I mean, it's going to, it's callous if I say I don't care. It's not that I don't care. I do care that people lose money. But at the end of the day, I think it all comes back to those two Latin words that I said an hour ago. And that's caveat emptor. Like people just, you know, if you're going to play the game, whether you're gambling or just mispricing risk, like you got to eat it. And so this is where the conversation about moral hazard comes in. And that's where I think that's what I think is really important. And I think what's really sorely lacking. And yeah, and um, I have a question there, just it might direct it towards a future conversation. But it, to me, it keeps coming back to like, who has access to capital? You know, R- Wall Street bets just made a, a, a move that allowed little people to have potentially the market power of a Jim Cramer or of a big hedge fund to be able to say something and speak it into existence, move the market and maybe make a lot of money. Um, But most people have access on any, you know, given day to a very, very small amount of money. And then maybe, you know, they have a credit card and they, they, they could theoretically get, you know, 10 or $20,000 or whatever, um, you know, access to a small amount of capital to do something. But if they go into a bank and they say, I want to do something, 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 they won't get it. But there's other people who wear suits, who work at certain banks and are probably way less responsible than a lot of these ordinary small people. But somehow they're able to 
leverage to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to be moving around these bets in all of these big games and the little people aren't. And I think that's where there's some awareness coming. Some people have access to liquidity and other people don't. And, you know, there, there, there's, there's something deeply unequal about that. And that's where, where it's, it's struck a chord with me that like there is this little revolutionary edge to what's happened with GameStop where like people who don't have fancy suits and work in glass cubicle skyscrapers, or at least not in the corner offices. And, you know, they were able to push, push the narrative a little bit and change the market a little bit, but they don't have access to the liquidity. They can't borrow, you know, $200,000 just to make a couple trades. You don't need to borrow. You don't need to borrow $200,000 if you have half a million people who all spend $10. If you can, if you can mobilize, you don't, you know, and and that's, that's the, that's what makes this epic. Okay. So, okay. So, but that, okay. There are a couple of things, a couple of things that, yeah, I think, I think that it is epic. Um, And I I do, I think that it, maybe, maybe we're going to have to take moral hazard to another conversation because I think that this is, this is, we're we're kind of stuck and interested in this one, which is great. Uh, but let's a couple couple points on that. One is Warren Buffett started with a very small amount of money and never employed leverage. Ever, like the, the man doesn't believe in leverage. It's one of his core tenets, and so and and it was only a few thousand dollars he started with. So understanding capital markets and and being able to make money in it is something that many 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 people have done um, by self educating and um, and and today with the internet there, there's so much power. So much ability, so much, so much opportunity, more than ever before, for people to really kind of put on um, to learn to learn what learn how to invest um, and learn and understand the fundamentals of the capital markets in ways that will generate wealth for their future. And I, I think it's a shame that we don't teach this to our children. Um, I teach it to my children. I think it's a shame that it's not part of a core curriculum of ideas. That are that are taught financial literacy is sorely lacking in our society. I saw a great story on CNN of uh, um, a kid who's, gosh, I can't remember the exact details, right? But like, his parents decided to teach him about the stock market. He's thirteen, maybe now, and two years ago for Christmas, they gave him a bunch of different stocks. Like on Robinhood, I think, like just random things to teach, really to teach him how this all works. And $5, $10, $20, really small amounts of money. And the kid ended up cashing out, I think, around $4,000. Um, wow. Yeah. Nice. And I'm I like, mean, that's good parenting. So I'll tell that you was that was good parenting that they, you know, put him on a path. This kid and this kid got on CNN. I was like, understood what happened. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Like, I should do that. I mean, I think every parent should do that. And I think, like I said, I think our education system should do that. Yeah. Meaning people need to, these are basic. I mean, your basic, your American high school curriculum doesn't cover a lot of these basic fundamental ideas about how, how, about how finances work, which is why you end up with somebody who takes out a quarter million dollars of debt to get a philosophy major. I mean, and this this yeah, takes us right back, back in, it takes us right back into the right back into the moral hazard conversation, right? 
The yeah. government took the risk out, right? The government took the risk out of the financial institutions, right? Because they guaranteed the paper. The government said, I'm going to guarantee that every student in education who wants one. So therefore, anybody who wants to borrow money to go to school can. What did this do? This fueled a boom in a number of things. It fueled a boom in the number of people going to college, which I think is great, by the way. I think getting more people educated on higher education is a wonderful thing. It also fueled a boom in tuition costs, right? right. Because if all of a sudden I don't have to, I don't have to worry, I, I don't have to think about how I'm going to work my way through college and pay the tuition and buy the books, et cetera, every semester or figure out how to get it from somewhere, right? Now I don't have to think about it. So to, what did university do? They raised their tuition. Now they have to right. justify their tuition. Now they justify their tuition. So what do they do? They hire 4 million administrators. Yeah. Right? And so yeah, there's it's been all, a corresponding boom in like administrative uh, in and, administrators. In and then what happens? The textbook companies jump in on the on the action, right? And now it's now it's five hundred dollars for a textbook, and and the eighteen year old that's taking out the debt and doesn't realize and understand and not thinking about the about the about the the consequences of their actions um, is now why don't they like there's an there's in in an economics class. Uh, one, one, early in one of my economics classes in my undergrad, the professor brings out this article about why are textbooks so expensive, right? And 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 it's because it's also, by the way, if you ever buy a new car, they sell you rubber floor mats for like four hundred dollars, right? Why? Because the car is thirty grand, and you're not looking at the fact they're selling you this option for floor mats for four hundred dollars, right? And you're thinking about the car payment, which is your monthly payment, which is small. And $400 amortized over a five-year lease is like a few dollars here and there. You don't think about the dollars. And it's the same and thing with the $500. Perfectly because they're custom, you know, fit. And if you oh, had yeah. to go out and buy floor mats, A, it would be For annoying to you wouldn't match your car. Well, fine. But that makes right. so it, 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 it's, it's the it same thing. It's more level than this, though, because, no, it's not quite the same thing. If you're getting a college Correct. education, it's because you're being told this is the necessary, this is the ante. This is the only way you can get in the game. You have no chance of getting a job unless you go to the you know, undergrad and then grad school and then internship and all these things, or you won't even get an entry-level job. So it's a form of coercion. It's oh, yeah. not a free decision. It's, it's also, I have decision. to say, it's also incredibly American and was constructed in within a certain cultural point of view, true, which... True, true. Which you you see only in a sense where living, you know, I'm living in Israel and my kid's future is determined by the army unit they go into much more than it is by whichever college they choose or whatever university they attend after it. So, you know, the the idea, the mythology in America that you your you know, the degree and the school that you go to and Ivy Leagues and your future depends on this education that you have to, you know, mortgage your life, you know, in this bizarre quarter million dollar obligation, which no undergrad should should make, you know, um is very well, uniquely cultural to America and the system. Sure, but um, my point in bringing this back, I apologize, was was to lead the moral the moral hazard conversation. Is that is that the 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 moral hazard is when you know a moral hazard is something that exists when you um, divorce the costs of something from 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 the thing itself. 
And so, I mean, the classic example of moral hazard, and I apologize, I, I don't know the dictionary definition off the top of my head, but the classic example of moral hazard is I have car insurance, so therefore I may I'm gonna I'm gonna speed because if I if I get in an accident, I don't it's not I don't bear the cost of what I'm doing anyway. And so this is the same thing in college education. This 18-year-old kid, they're not thinking about it, but the but the government created that incentive ultimately by saying we're going to guarantee student debt. And this same thing, and now I'm going to take us right back to the stock market. I apologize. Well, it wasn't quite the same people. You're saying the colleges and the textbook companies put their foot on the gas because the government guaranteed the kids student, you know, student debt. And um, yeah, I, I think that there's a huge danger to, as they put it, not having skin in the game. Like, you know, if right. the colleges had to, you know, be on the hook for part of that debt, or if, you know, the partners at the hedge fund had to have a large chunk of their own capital tied up in the risks they were taking, like Nassim Nicholas Taleb's next book after Black Swan was Skin in the Game. And he believes that there's, there's a tr tremendous counter dynamic to moral hazard, which is when you actually have your own skin in the game, you're forced to think about the risk differently and be a lot, not necessarily more careful, but uh, uh, you're forced to, to, to be more holistic about it. Yes, I agree a thousand percent with that, that perspective. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tweak, I apologize, I'm going I'm to guide the conversation around moral hazard back to the stock market because that's what we were talking about. And the, the, the main moral hazard that I see that exists in the stock market today is, is, the, is what, what they call, or they used to call, the, what's called the Fed put, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, what they, that's literally what they call it on Wall Street. If you watch like Bloomberg Television or CNBC, I, I mean, this is, a, this is a term that was popularized back in 2013-14 when, because, because as the economy was melting down, the Federal Reserve basically stepped in and said, we're not going to let the economy fail. And, once, and that creates a tremendous amount of moral hazard. And I, I, I literally yeah. watched people make decisions back in March in the midst of a pandemic, right? Make seemingly stupid bets on the stock market, seemingly, okay? With the only rationale being that the Fed and the, and the Congress are going to step in. Which they did. Which they did. And the more, and, and uh, um, there's a fascinating memo on this kind of by Howard Marks, which I shared with Matthew back in May, which I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to in the, in the comments here at the end of the video, but cause I'd have to go and find it. But, but that like the, 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 the actions of the federal reserve and the Congress, I've heard investors straight up. There's no, like, it doesn't make any sense for me to plow money in and buy right now, but I know the Federal Reserve is going to come in. I know and that yet, they're going to rescue the system. And, and, and yet, they might yeah. not. And, and yet, the Democrats won. And if Elizabeth, if Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren has the influence or that she wants in the way that she wants, then the, you know, those... Uh, I, I'm using this term. There will be margin calls. <laughs> you know, there will be, a, I'm going to say there will be a correction in the market because I think during a pandemic, I think on one hand, yeah, it's good that there was a stable stock market, but I'm a populist, right? So when I see uh, uh, an economy where yep. the stock market is stable and it's up here and it's fine, but people are all over the place, you mm -hmm. know? Then I'm like, this is fake, right? 
because everything underneath it, there, there's only a certain amount of turmoil. And there's only a certain amount of time that the government can keep this stable up here with, with the amount of, let's say, we don't know the black swan event that could break, actually break Wall Street. We don't know what that is. But it's not as well, if... Well, it did. Oh, it did. Okay. The stock market, the, the Black Swan event of the Great Financial Crisis did break Wall Street. 100% yeah, broke but Wall I'm Street. Yeah, but I'm saying that, that the government put it back together doesn't mean they always will put it back together. Uh, 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 but I don't think... I, I think I come and agree that the government didn't put it back together. We're playing a different game now. The stock market was created and, and worked on the basis that it actually could fail. And those risks were sort of more priced into the things. And there was sort yeah. of the rules of thumb that had real meaning, like a PDE ratio, profit to earnings ratio was like 10 to 1, that the total market cap of a stock shouldn't be more than 10 years worth of the annual profit of the company. Or, uh, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but at a certain point in the 80s, they started to like let all these sort of, quote, ordinary people, mutual funds in um, big Big brokerage were starting to be. They used to have to bar, bet their own money. You, partners had to be. You know, the, the the investment banks were betting their own. Were using their own money to 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 move. You know, do their investment banking moves. And in the 80s, they gradually became allowed to to, to lend to other people's money. And I think all of those things sort of cascaded to the point where we have a game that no longer fits the original rules and no longer fits the original moral incentives that actually used to make sense. And so now we have like a hundred moral hazards up and down the chain of all of these things that we call the stock market and then the derivatives around it. And it, it's become really detached, like you said, from the reality of ordinary people's lives and factories and jobs and you know, the the, 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 the the market might be up here, but all the rest of us are way all over the place here. I think there's specific reasons for that. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. Right. So I, I, I just I agree with you 100 percent. I just don't agree that it's going to continue like this forever. I think that that the the possibility it, it just like it was. You know, there was a time where there was uh, skin in the game, just like there was a time where you had to put in your own money means there could be a time, you know, when the game when when the U.S., you know, when the government will not float, stabilize or believe in too big to fail because too big to fail was a huge mistake. So I uh, I agree that too big to fail is a huge mistake. And I think that that moral hazard is is, is, is a tremendous problem. I also am very, very, very happy and pray that I am never the person who has to make that decision because, <laughs> because, because the consequences on both sides are real. And the, the, the problem is, there's a couple of problems, but the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury put the stock market back together in 2008-9, right? By printing a lot of money. By printing a lot of money. And no, that's how they do it, right? They do it by printing a lot of money. But but what does that do? What by printing a lot of money, like that's that is what's called the Fed put. That was the rationale that drove people in March to buy, even though buying didn't make sense in the stock market. Um, the problem is that had the government not acted in 2009, eight, nine the way they did and printed the money that they did, it think that that the financial crisis was a very interesting situation in which it was the first time 
that that really for a very major on a major crisis basis or not in the first time but it was the, it was in in our in our lives and memories a a financial bubble and financial crisis not bubble but a financial crisis led to real downstream negative economic consequences on the real economy right and and that hurt a lot of people for a long time and it, i mean it stole my generation and it still is but it's still reverberating um it, it i graduated college in july of 2009 i mean you know, it was like like i mean and there's a whole generation of people like that like coming out come trying to come into the workforce in that period of time and it, and it was devastating and that all the all those things were ripples and that was with the fed jumping in and if you're going to go back to the history of the great financial crisis they 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 orchestrated a bailout of Bear Stearns, and then they let Lehman collapse. I don't maybe it was in reverse, but they they saved one institution and let another one fail. Right, and that was kind of oh, we lost Matthew. I'm sure he'll be back. Uh, and that was that was you know what what you know had they let just everything fail, I, that crisis froze up capital markets to the point where businesses couldn't borrow and lend. And it caused the prices of everything to get messed up and all kinds of stuff happened. And so I, I, I'm not saying that they should or shouldn't have done. I wish that I, I, like I said, I don't envy, here's Matthew. I don't envy the position and I don't ever want to have to be the one in that position. But I think you're right. I think that the, the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury need to reinstill at least the fear of God into people that play in the markets on a regular basis. Because as long as they can get away with saying the Fed is going to stop it, where the Fed is going to stop this massive systemic um, collapse, then, then it's then then people are going to continue behaving in the same way. Oh, and yeah, I mean the other sort of you might say the market forces potential counterweight to that is that by papering it over, which is in a sense literally what they did, they just printed a lot of paper and 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 therefore there was enough money to cover all the messes, but money doesn't really quite work that way. In most other countries, when they try to print more money to, to, to fill in the gaps of their stock markets or to pay off their own debts, it doesn't work because other people are like, well, there was 10 million of your pounds or, or rupees or whatever. You, you can't just print another 10 million. We're just going to say it's only worth 50 cents of what it was. So there's a certain sense that you could say that the inevitable downside of this eventually for the dollar is that suddenly the dollar is only worth 50 cents or 20 cents. I mean, uh, it, it, it would, some of my very like investment involved friends are, are investing in other countries because they're expecting other currencies and other commodities because they believe the dollar has to crash because the underlying value didn't increase by the amount of new dollars that they printed. Well, and it also spurred it just the knock-on effect of that, and I'm a big fan of understanding unintended consequences. Is the whole modern monetary theory that the the, the reaction to 2008 2009 and the and the subsequent lack of massive inflation, which was expected at the time, right, led a whole school of economists to say, well, maybe we just don't understand the rules. We can print as much money as we want. <laughs> okay, maybe forever. And now, maybe and now we can afford. And now, it's and maybe it's just magic. And you, at the end of the day, 
everything does gonna gonna kind of have to come back to earth. And I think the biggest mistake of the financial crisis was not pulling out of it, um, not weaning Wall Street off of the free money environment, not raising interest rates. The problem is that when you raise interest rates, it subdues business activity. And so the Fed's job is to make sure prices stay stable and employment stays maximized. So they want to make sure that the economy runs hot enough to get people 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 working, right? But not so hot that prices start to inflate. And so they were afraid that when you raise interest rates, right, you cool the economy. You you slow things down on the economic basis, which is going to hurt employment. At some point, grown-ups have to say, if, if you're going to get involved in the markets, if the, if the government and the Federal Reserve are going to have the ability to play in the, in the markets, right, and, and, and bail out, you need adults in the room to take away the punch bowl. And that was a huge thing under Trump, right? Trump wanted to keep the punch bowl flowing. That's what he did, right? The Federal Reserve was on a hiking, on a hiking, uh, a hiking spree, right? They were hiking interest rates. And Trump is like, you're just going to hike us right into a recession, which was true, by the way. There was a point where the yield curve started to invert, uh, which is typically an indicator of a recession. And it started to happen because when kind of the supply and demand of money and, and, and short and long interest rates, kind of what is the, exp- uh, I don't know if we're going to go into exactly what the yield curve is right now, but there was a point where it looked like the, we were looking, we were going to eventually have a recession because the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates. And that was probably the right thing to do. Now, a pandemic is kind of a weird curveball that nobody, like, it's, it's like a real black swan event. Like, a, enterprising people looked at the great financial crisis and figured it out. Right. 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 Well, like, I mean, people also predicted, uh, I have to go. Okay. Um, so we'll have to talk next, maybe the next topic will be black swan events, preparing <laughs> for them. Is this pandemic a black swan event? Because I would argue that no. But, uh uh, I think it was an eventuality, but then again, like you said before, you know, it was there. Any black swan event is an eventuality. This was just happened to be the one that happened. Uh, you know, there could have been so, other things. So that just could have to define, to go back to Taleb's definition of black swan, one of the key definitions is that afterwards, one of the key definitions of black swan is that in, in hindsight, everybody realizes it was obvious. So I, um, I think I think that a pandemic. Well, I think everybody, I, I think there's I think enough that a pandemic, evidence. Everybody, everybody knew this was coming. But true, true. The, everyone knew it was a possibility, at, at least theoretically. I I, I want to honor Sarah's. Sarah needs to 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 leave our call. Um, so we are very grateful, Sarah, that you joined us. In, Thank you, Sarah. Uh, love to have you again sometime. I do. I do want to jump, and uh, I do. I want to take a few more minutes if you have the time, Matthew, because there were a few chats that came in uh, with questions that I that I that I in the comments kind of promised to try to answer anyway. Um, so let's, um, Sarah, you want to have a last word? Tell us about the political implications of everything we've done. <laughs> the political implications. Uh, listen, I'm just here to talk about GameStop because I find it uh, I find it as a pivotal moment in the history of Wall Street, at least, and in the history of social media and behavior and our, our the ability that technology has put in our hands uh, through through apps, through retail, 
uh, investors to, in, in a sense, you know, on one hand, make money on another hand, wreak havoc. And I kind of, I kind of love the chaos. <laughs> and I'm excited to see what happens from here because like, to me, this is just like a lot of fun to watch. Well, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll speak more next time. I'm going to just move to the, the yeah, there was thank a couple you. of people. Thank you, oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. Yes. Thank you. All right. Bye guys. Uh, uh, bye. Bye. All right. So then I'm going to go back and, um, there's a couple of people in the audience asked about shorting, whether it's ethical, unethical, legal, or illegal. And um, somebody specifically said, the comment is, isn't the issue that shorts were equal or greater than the free float? I believe that's illegal and was overlooked in many cases by the system. The answer is that it's not illegal uh, for the shorts to be over, over, the, over the free float in the market. I mean, I think it is, it's, it's dumb. I mean, I wouldn't do it. Um, but um, the way that a short works is you, you borrow, you I, actually, I should stop. I tried to stop using the word borrow when describing a short, even though that's the standard definition and, and regularly accepted term. I, I try to use the word rent because it makes more sense, but you rent a share from somebody and then you sell it on the open market and that, that same share can then be rented to somebody else or back to the same person. So there's no mechanically, there's no, there's nothing that stops shorts from being over hundred percent, but Short sellers know and should know um, that when the short interest ratio, which is the amount number of shares that are short divided by the number of shares in the free float is high, the risk of a short squeeze is high. So because all it takes is a small spike in demand and then people start calling back their stocks so they can sell them so they can realize the profit and that's what generates a short squeeze. So it's, it's, it's not, a, I think it'd be very, it's very hazardous to have a very, to, to, to short a stock when there's a high short interest ratio, but it's not illegal. Um, and then somebody else on the same comment about shorting asks, you know, why are people saying that shorting is unethical? Um, I'm not an expert in ethics. Um, I don't know if I'm an <laughs> expert in anything, but uh, in my opinion, um, I think ethics are something that people need to consider for themselves and should not be dictating um, the um, should not be dictating law and regulation and policy. I think that um, because ethics are personal, everybody has their own kind of set of ethics that they ascribe to. Um, but um, I don't I think that shorts do provide do fill an important role in capital markets. And that is they are kind of a tapping on the brakes of something that is running away. Uh, and that is because the basic tendency of the stock market is to be bullish. Over time, the stock market rises. Everybody just kind of, most people, a lot of people don't pay attention. A very large percentage of the stock market is traded in, in passive, in a passive manner, which is how, by the way, I recommend to anybody listening that wants to invest, and I do a lot of investment myself, if you want to be involved in investment and you're not going to live it every single day, I tell this to everybody and I don't give financial advice, but anybody who asks me, this is kind of, I tell them be passive. If you're not going to be active, active means I'm reading the research reports. I'm looking at the balance sheets. I'm understanding the fundamentals of the company. I'm looking into it every single day and I'm working with it. I'm living it and breathing it in all my spare time. If you're not going to do that, then be passive. Buy a index tracking ETF, work with financial advisor, you know, allocate 
do an allocation and just don't think about it. I mean, I, the, the stock market yeah. in the long run is a wealth creation machine where if you just keep pushing any extra money you have into it over time, it will, it will, it will likely, and it's historically generated an amount of wealth, six to 8% a year on average over the last very many, many years. Um, and when you start to try to jump in and out of positions, you're more likely to get it wrong than right. Yeah. My, my only quarrel with that on an individual level, I think that makes sense. But I think as we alluded to before, the increase since the eighties of, as they called it, other people's money being invested by the, the people who manage mutual funds or pensions or whatever, the more degrees of separation you have from the people making the decisions from the people whose money it actually is, you do introduce levels of moral hazard that have these sort of big unintended downstream consequences. So hundred oh, percent, but I was answering the short question uh, and, yeah, and yeah, I, I would yeah, get back 100%. to finishing, finishing up on that. And that sure. I, that there is this general bullish tendency because most, most, most investing is passive, which I, like I said, that's, I think if you're not going to live it, you should be passive and not active. Um, so the market has a bullish tendency. And what a short does is they, their job is to kind of wake people up to risks that a company faces, essentially. And so they, they uh, I read an article a couple of years ago in the Wall Street Journal, which I thought was very insightful, which is be careful. Basically, it's, it's cautioning care against betting on betting against shorts. And basically, because these people, their risk is asymmetric to the downside, right? Meaning if you're short a stock, and the stock goes at $5 and the stock goes to a million, you lost $999,995, right? If the stock goes to zero, you made $5. So the, the risk is always asymmetrically against a short seller. What's the next question you want to answer? So, no, then, and so, so, but, so, but, but, but a short does, they're taking a lot of risk and they're thinking about it and they're doing a lot of homework and research before they decide to take that position short. And that, and that provides a valuable function of the market because it does get people to realize that there's a problem here. And another, an example, right. an example right. it's, a better, is, it's a better way of, of making the market rationally allocate than just simply selling the stock. Well, cause yeah, because most people aren't paying that much attention and you can't just sell the stock. So when you give people the ability to make money by betting against the stock, right, you are incentivizing them to do the research to see if the stock makes sense or not. Yeah. Um, and, and this, the, one of the things that is going to happen out of this is that shorts are going to be a lot more reticent and hesitant about jumping into positions, and they're going to not publish their research. A lot of short firms publish their research. Um, and uh, there's a big hedge fund that made, made, made a splash, Hindenburg Research, in, in uncovering what was uh, uncovering Nikola, which was an electric truck company that was be, going to be purchased by GM. And they basically did the did a bunch of research and pointed out that it that, that the product didn't exist, and 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 that had a massive impact on the stock, but it also showed people kind of what the risks are, uh, in a way. And ultimately, I believe I don't follow it exactly. Um, GM kind of backed out of the deal. They were going to pay a, a lot of money. <laughs> they were they they were they were going to take a lot of risk on Nikola, and I think that this short seller actually. Um, Kind of did them a favor in that way, although time will tell in the long run. Um, you say they, help, they helpfully make, made calip, capital allocate more. Re, re, correct. More exactly. And so I don't think I don't think it's unethical, and I think it serves a very a valuable market function. And I, I get nervous when politicians throw ethics around uh, mm. because politicians typically um, do whatever. Is or lawyers. 
<laughs> they do whatever is politically expedient uh, at the time. I think time. 90, 95 percent of Congress are are trained as lawyers. Yeah, that's why they want to legislators. Right. Anyway, when politicians throw around the word ethics, it bothers me. It scares me, and because politicians are, they're all, they're all. Mo- mo- I have, I've met a lot of politicians in my time, and. Um, some of them are seem like good upstanding people who really just want to make a positive change in the world and give back to their country. But mostly politicians, I've seen it time and time again. It's a lot of just saying whatever they think is going to rally the more people to their side. Um, and so uh, I, I, I'd rather not get preached on ethics by politicians. And with that, that's kind of all I promised to answer. Uh, in the comments, but uh, feel free to comment, send questions, topics you want us to talk about. Um, think, consider buying our book. I do not think that word means what you think it means. It's available on Amazon. I will post the link. It's available on our page, like our page, share us around, ask us questions, suggest topics for future. All of that happens at the Facebook page or, uh, and, and then some. Yeah, we. Um, I, I do want to say, like, I, I feel like we got the chance to talk about a few words that people misunderstand in this um, in this episode. And um, you know, look, there, there's a, there's an opportunity right now in the so so to speak post Trump era to maybe heal a little bit of the division of all of us shouting at each other and misunderstanding each other. So even though they almost bent over backwards to deny it afterwards, I feel like AOC and Trump, I mean, AOC and Cruz coming together to, uh, to be uh, skeptical of Robin Hood's actions, you know, GameStop is so bizarre and so large that it's sort of apolitical in the sense of the left right split. And I find it really exciting that we get to talk about something without automatically defaulting into our red and blue tribes and maybe actually figure out what each other are saying. So that, that's why I'm happy in the moment to be, uh, to be talking about GameStop instead of uh, all of the uh, partisan screaming. But that is, that's why we exist. And, you know, uh, as we, as you and I, and this, this Facebook live stream page podcast, book, et cetera, is to promote common understanding and acceptance of nuance and, and get people to just have reasoned conversations and understand nuance, um, which um, three people were able to get together uh, on a live stream. We all have our own views and uh, nobody slandered anybody or, you know, cut, cut anybody off and, and didn't get overly heated, although at times it kind of bubbled up a little bit and that's okay. And we were able to have a conversation. Um, you know, I, I, I love, I, I've been a friend and fan of Sarah Nadav for a long time, even though we vehemently disagree. I, uh, when I, in my former life as a troll, um, I used to troll her page regularly. Um, (laughs) I've since reformed my, my ways as a troll and tried to, to not engage on a trolling fashion and, and avoid uh, all those kind of attacks. Um, I don't find them fun anymore, but also I think, actually that's not true. I do find them fun, but I don't find them productive to society. Um, and so I, I, I love the fact that I'm able to get on a live stream with Sarah and spend two hours talking about something that we both have very different viewpoints on a number of topics. And, and, and I hope that contributes to, to, to some people's kind of deeper understanding of things. And, uh, 
ultimately, if more and more people do this and have these conversations, then that'll help us fix the uh, divides that we're facing as a nation. Awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah, Have a wonderful day. And join us next time, probably next week sometime. We'll put it out on the Facebook page.